Welcome to Net Profit, a podcast and newsletter about the business of growing women's professional football, also known as soccer to some of us. The aim is to share ideas, case studies, and best practices within the women's football business community on developing and monetizing the fan bases of our clubs. The podcast features experts from within football, as well as many others from across sports, entertainment, and consumer brand marketing. I'm Eric Cohen-Peckham from Women's Football Group. If you like this show, subscribe in your podcast app. To keep up with new episodes and get extra resources, news curation, and commentary, join the newsletter at womensfootballgroup.com slash netprofit. In today's episode, we're viewing women's football from the perspective of brand sponsors. What are the opportunities and challenges they see as they evaluate sponsorship opportunities with leagues, clubs, and athletes across this sport? And what can you do to improve your sponsorship sales efforts? Our guest is Jenny Mitten, a managing partner and the women's sport lead at MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment in London. It is one of the leading sports marketing firms in the UK, guiding top brands like Barclays, O2, BMW, and Virgin Media on their sponsorship efforts. Her team also led PR and communications for the UEFA Women's Euro in England in 2022, attracting new demographics to the sport, with 80% of general ticket sales going to customers who are new to the Football Association and UEFA. Jenny, welcome to the show. Hi, Eric. It's great to be here. So excited to dive into all your many thoughts on sponsorship opportunity and dynamics within women's football. Um, just to, to start us off and give a framework, what does MNC Saatchi do currently within women's football? Well, we're a, uh, we're a passions marketing agency, so we're based in London, but we have a global network. And we have been sort of one of the leading agencies in passion marketing for a long time. So anything consumers are passionate about, we make sure we place fan of consumers in the and brands in the heart of those passions. So obviously, women's sport is now a growing passion. We've worked in men's sport for a long time, and now we've seen women's sport really come up into the forefront. I think since about 2017, we've probably been one of the leading agencies in the space. How did you end up doing this at this point in time? What's your background that brought you into it? My background is, I think I, I'm one of these classic people who fell into working in sport. I've always loved sport, Eric. And I started out um, due to my age. And when I was at school, football wasn't available for girls. And I was a massive Nottingham Forest fan. So they're a UK-based team. But currently having rich fortunes in the Premier League, which wasn't always the case. And I followed them for years as a kid. But, you know, in the playground, I was unusual. Girls didn't follow football in, you know, the 1980s, 1990s. I used to go to the games all the time. I had a season ticket and I knew I loved forest. I knew I loved sport, but I just didn't, couldn't see any women or any girls in the space. And I vividly remember um, the point where I dipped my toe in wanting to be in sport, but realized it wasn't the case. It was in a career day. I was really young. I think I'm about 10 or 11. And they said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I've been to forest, hadn't seen any women at the game, part one, apart from one woman, a player's wife, Stuart Pierce's wife. So I said, I'd like to be Stuart Pierce's wife. Now, this was well before wags were a thing. It's terrible, isn't it? This is well before, you know, Wayne Rooney's wife, Clean, and, you know, Cheryl Cole, and, Wang, you know, wags didn't exist then. But the only female I'd ever seen was a wife. And we used to laugh about it over sort of family dinners for years and years. And I think a few years ago, we all kind of came to the realization of, wow, that's really sad, isn't it? That as a girl, I just couldn't see a, a space for me in sport. So I went into men's sport. I love sports, so I was really delighted to be in the space and work with some incredible brands over the years. And then I think the changing point probably came in around 2017. I don't know if you can remember this. Over here, we had a Home Women's World Cup, and we packed out Lords. And I think it was a site no one had ever seen before. Cricket is quite a, an elitist, probably older sport in the UK. Well, it was 
in 2017 and suddenly you turned around and looked at Pax Out Lords. You had two female teams on the pitch and you had faces in the crowd that were young, that were diverse, completely different than we'd seen in the game. And I think that certainly in the UK was a huge turning point. And I think suddenly then I realised there was a genuine opportunity in women's sport. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and, and you and your team have been at the thick of it working in some of the biggest tournaments with some of the biggest brands over the last few years. We have. And actually, we're, it was really interesting. In that same year, I think it was that sort of light bulb moment we saw that packed out Lords that we were working with O2, who have been a long-term sponsor of England Rugby, so the national rugby team over here. And they've been a partner for sort of 20 odd years. They have been supporting the women since 2013, which is, I think, quite rare in this space. But they hadn't really committed funds to a big campaign. So we worked with the team there and said, look, there's a real opportunity here. And their team, they're a really progressive brand. They're very modern. They were like, yeah, we see it. We need to appeal to a diverse audience, a younger audience. Men's rugby, again, skews slightly older. Actually, from seeing what we saw in Lords, women's rugby could be the way forward. And in 2017, we convinced them to deliver their first Women's World Cup campaign. And they have not looked back since. Just to show you how progressive they were in, in 2020, when obviously everything shut down due to COVID. And I think it was obviously the same for your sports leagues over the pond, Eric. But men's sports slowly came back behind closed doors but it was still being supported women's sport just got cancelled at this point O2 had their contract renewal for England rugby and it'd be really easy just to carry on and do things as they always did but they took a step back and said hang on if we're going to get behind the women we're going to do this properly so when everyone else was turning their back on women's sport O2 committed to parity funding across the men's and women's teams for the next five years every pound they spend on the men they would spend on the women which I think was pretty groundbreaking something i'd love to see more brands commit to yeah what have you seen as the big differences for sponsors getting involved on uh, the women's side of sport compared to uh, how they're approaching the men's side very different so i think probably and this is probably a sponsorship category issue traditionally and probably this is probably true even sort of three or four years ago brands would look at reach as a kind of success metric so you know if my brand is on the front of the shirt going to be on tv and it's going to be seen globally that is the ad value of x and that's how i can go back to my board and say look i'm spending this much on the partnership but if i was going to spend this on advertising and brand awareness it would cost me 10 times more now with men's sport you have that reach it's then it's a given so it was quite lazy if we're honest eric people are like oh i could just reach a mass audience but i won't do much else behind it where women's sport we have to be more dynamic because the audience numbers are not there and it's going to take some time to get there we're in our infancy it's a bit like the startup to the commercial giant but this is super exciting because what this means if you get on board now you're joining a growing audience and you're helping to shape women's sports culture so whereas probably there's been more of a laziness in the men's sports space where brands will just slap the logo on something and, and enjoy the reach and exposure and probably sit back a bit in women's sports space Brands are being more innovative and actually creating a narrative for themselves. And by doing that, they're really engaging with that consumer. And I think the big difference we're starting to see within metrics. So the Women's Sport Trust in the UK is a fantastic organization that does tons of research into the space. Actually, anyone globally do have a look because their stats are really helpful. And they found that women's sport fans, I think it's 18 to 35 year olds, are 26% more likely to spend with a women's sport sponsor we are seeing that whilst these numbers are smaller we are seeing that these fans are more likely to purchase from the brands involved with the sport so brands are getting involved and it's interesting and they're actually thinking rather than just going for reach i'm actually looking at different types of engagement with the consumer and playing a bit of a long game 
Yeah, it's an important question. Also for clubs and leagues as they're pitching brands right now, why should a brand get involved early as opposed to just waiting a few more years for the scale to be greater, right? The passion and emotional connection element is very powerful, right? Of you know, this, the women's football community is about more than just sport. It really is a movement uh, that has deeper values. And there's uh, great appreciation from uh, fans and athletes in seeing brands align with that mission and those values and that deeper emotional connection, right? Like here in Los Angeles, Angel City, I would have kind of impressive brand integrations they do is the corner kick is branded the cedar sinai uh, local hospital system corner kick and unlike other sporting events i've been to when they announce this corner kick you see people with homemade signs they've created for cedar sinai the hospital system and this excitement over it which the club has done a great job of integrating that into fan culture and, and making it authentic um, but i think it speaks to this of showing that you're investing in this early the demographic differences are very exciting to brands as well. Oh, I love the demographic difference, largely because it's evolving. We, um, I guess we started out and it was like, okay, we're definitely appealing to a younger audience. Gen Z, who I think a lot of the traditional sports tournaments are desperate to get hold of. F1 had to create a whole documentary series with Netflix and completely change their marketing strategy because they were really worried their audience was literally going to die off and they had to appeal to this audience. Where we're seeing with women's sport, Gen Z and our diverse audience are flooding into the space and they're really engaged with the with what they're seeing as a product on the pitch, but also in terms of the values around the sport as well. It really, you know, Gen Z as an audience, they value equality more, they value fairness more, they're excited and optimistic about the world. And I think the prospect of women's sport really appeals to this group. But then on a the flip side, I don't know if you noticed during the Women's World Cup um, down in New Zealand and Australia, it was really exciting to see some new advertising come to the forefront. The two ads that really I, I noticed, there was um, Budweiser that had a certain Argentine superstar in Messi and also Orange France um, who created a really innovative ad using AI. And they both, I didn't, I remember watching them for the first time and I was like, oh, I don't like those. Uh, yeah, it's really, really patronizing. You know, I really like women's sport. This is going really backwards. And then suddenly the light bulb moment hit and I was like, these weren't made for me. These were made for men. And I was like, this is amazing. So clearly Bud and Orange, two huge brands, had done some research to say, yeah, we're appealing to younger fans for bringing more women into sport. But actually, great women's sport is also appealing to men's sports fans, which are predominantly men. So these ads were being created for men. So it just shows you the, the scope of this audience. If you're potentially a sport that might be, I don't know, fledging in numbers or not really growing at the rate you should be, actually leaning into the women's space is a really exciting opportunity because not only can you pull in new fans to sport there's an opportunity potentially to pinch other fans from men's sports as well which is quite exciting yeah absolutely i'm curious if if you like this is still the case with the opportunity for brands and getting involved early you are often signing multi-year contracts that maybe help you get a deal on future growth they're not usually 10-year long deals but do you feel like it is still cheap for brands compared to other opportunities on a dollar for dollar basis to be sponsoring women's football right now, the amount of engagement that they get compared to you know, putting that dollar elsewhere? If you look at, I guess, at the the brands and the, the time they've been around, yes, it, it is cheaper. The audience, they're still in their infancy. The audience base is far smaller. Really good comparison, I think, if you're the shirt sponsor of sort of Manchester United Football Club over in the UK, which has global appeal, you're probably playing 60 million a year for the shirt sponsorship. Whereas if you look at Angel City, I think they market between somewhere between three and five million for their shirt sponsorship. So obviously there is a huge difference. 
But I think what people are finding surprising uh, is that we are in the space of millions. So there are female women's teams shirt sponsors going out there that are asking for a million to be, you know, the lead sponsor. We're seeing that with tournaments. We're seeing that multi-year tournaments, so um, tournaments that come around every four years who have multi-partners, they're asking for the sort of 250 to 500K plus to be part of the tournament family. So they are significant figures. They are asking for brands for a significant investment. And then also we're seeing as part of that, and this is what I want to see more from rights holders. This is, I think, the trick a lot of them are missing is actually as part of those clauses, they're also asking the brands to invest in the marketing. So, you know, that, that approach I talked to before, men's partnerships previously has been a little bit slap a badge on, walk away, job done. Actually, in women's sport, we're seeing a lot of deals coming to place where they're actually asking for more from their partners. So WNBA in America is a great example. They have their change makers program. So if you're a brand who's going to be a partner of WNBA, you have to have a role. And what they do is they look at all the different areas of the sport, whether that's fans, whether that's players, whether that's digital engagement, whether that's the, the TV experience, and they give a brand a specific role. So they have something to own. They have a narrative to run with. They have something they can make a positive change around. And actually, they have something they can become famous for, which I think is really interesting. So whilst, yes, they're having to make an investment, they're also being really innovative in how they use their rights. And I, I think going forward, I would love to see more rights holders take that kind of approach. So yes, a lot less than the men, but we're seeing a slow, slow steady increase. Are, are there certain categories of brands you see getting most excited about the opportunity in this sport right now? Yeah, it's been quite an interesting journey. So at the start, and I think this was always expected, the brands that really invested in women's sport early doors were often those that are already in men's sports. So often the initial opportunities came from, great, you sponsor the men's team. I tell you what, chuck in the women as well. You buy one, get one free, um, which, you know, happened and it, it wasn't great, but it did give these big brands exposure to the women's team. Now, as these women's, as there was more investment into the team, and the product got better. I think brands started to wake up and go, hang on, this isn't just our sort of freebie extra. We need to be doing something with this team. So traditional brands in the space who have been long-term sponsors, so financial institutions, because they often have um, enough money to be big partners. You feel big telco companies. So those kind of organizations where they probably just had the women thrown in actually have started making more of their partnerships. Then the next stage, which was really interesting, and this sort of happened probably around COVID where we had to digitize more and digital became even more of a focus than it was before. That's when we saw a lot of the tech brands get involved, specifically in America, actually. So you saw your Googles, Amazon, YouTube. They were suddenly coming into the women's space. They'd maybe dabbled in the men's space for partnerships, but they were really making their mark. And I think that was very much an impact of everything going on globally. Then coming out of COVID, we started to get this kind of, this wonderful reaction of women's sport being squashed and it rose from the ashes. And everyone said, hang on, we had some powerful momentum pre-COVID. You can't stop this. We're coming out fighting. And the audience is just growing at such an insane rate. Then we started to see the big mass brands take note. They were like, hang on. If I'm a Unilever or a P&G, a big organization that has to future-proof my products, and I want to make sure that Gen Z are buying into my toothpaste or my hair dye or my ice cream, where am I going to go to sell? Where am I going to engage them and get them brought into my brand? And they suddenly saw this wave of like positive growth and also, you know, women's sport comes with a really positive narrative, a very safe narrative, I think, for brands to play. And we then started seeing the bigger mass brands get involved. Unilever partnered with the um, Women's World Cup. It was part of a, a men's deal as well, but they supported the Women's World Cup first. I've not seen Unilever really in sports sponsorship before. And the first thing they do in the, is in the women's space. That's really exciting to me. And I think we'll see 
a lot more new brands come into sports partnerships that probably haven't been in this space before because they thought that maybe either the men's space was too cluttered because it, it is a very busy space or maybe it wasn't quite right for them and the audience they were after. Yeah. Are you seeing many approach women's football to augment what they're already doing on the men's side or the examples you give there, many are specifically coming for a women's football investment strategy? It's a bit of a mix. There's still some brands who probably think sports partnerships are right for me. They come into the space, but because quite rightly, they probably have a, their, their workforce is mixed sex. They probably service mixed sex out consumer as men or females. So they can't just be seen to servicing men through their sports partnerships. So they will bring on board a women's partnership. But we are seeing some brands going, do you know what? I don't have 50 million for a football shirt, but I can rust up one or two million for a partnership for a women's sports sponsorship. And I think the fact that they have more accessible entry budgets and they probably have a different type of audience. We are seeing some more of those new brands. A great example is in the UK, Il Maquillage. I don't know if you might not know them, Eric. They might not be the brand for you. It's a makeup brand, which basically follows people around Instagram. It's very big in, in the UK and Europe. And they partnered with Arsenal and their sort of brand affinity scores have gone absolutely through the roof because the product's great. So the, the players wear it and use it and they like it. And they've shown that on Instagram. It's had a really natural mix. Also, Il Maquillage has just come in in a really natural way, really understood the brand, really worked with the players and suddenly going absolutely through the roof and it's everywhere. And that's because they came into the space in a really authentic way and actually really understood that ultimately, whether you're a player or a punter on the street, you might want to look good and we're a great brand and we can do that for you. Um, so that's exciting. And we've seen in rugby, Clinique has started coming to rugby as well. Because again, that's the beauty that if you're a rugby player, Yes, it is one of the most physical games on the planet, but you still might want to look good on the pitch and that's okay. And it's all about confidence and feeling good. So we are seeing some brands come into the space that I think five years ago, we, we wouldn't have thought possible. Definitely. Cosmetics, beauty, certain categories of products more targeted at women are finding an entryway into sport in a way that seemed less obvious or less targeted previously. Also, the opportunity for gross brands, right? Those who don't have the budget to even consider a 60 million pound a year sponsorship but for these clubs as they're smaller for now hopefully not later being able to get involved and also the alignment between these startup brands and their digital native operations and audience right reaching consumers over instagram as a central acquisition channel it aligns well with this very gen z fan base we see around the women's side on the other hand, I, I'm curious, do you see certain categories of sponsors, like I think of maybe beer sponsors, which are huge across men's sports. I feel like I haven't seen as many being major sponsors on the women's side. I think maybe during the you know, Women's World Cup in August, Budweiser this is a good test of their uh, effectiveness of their brand campaigns. Um, it was involved. But I, I'm curious, have you seen certain brands try to sponsor within women's football and see that they get less traction? I have, and actually on just on the, the beer category, that's one thing they should do more in the US because like you said, it's brands like Bud Light, I'd love to see them activating in the women's side. If they look over at Europe, Heineken launched a campaign called Cheers to All Fans. So it's just celebrating all fans and it's brilliant. And they turn up a Champions League game, whether it's men's or women's, with the same activation, the same support. And it's just about great football and they're putting great football on a platform. You know, that's what I think probably beer brands in the US should be looking to do. In terms of brands that probably aren't right for the space, this is really interesting because sometimes we have to be careful we don't move into a place where we're like, women's sport is the purest territory because we're still sport, we still want to have an edge, um, but we are different from the men's space. 
I think probably the most extreme example of that was from the World Cup when FIFA, who probably haven't displayed the best attributes of a leading global organization over the last few years, um, dipped their toe in the water. So, you know, they, they, were, they weren't stupid. They were basically throwing out there, we'd visit Saudi and see what the reaction was. So they were, they were saying it was a rumored deal. And they did that on purpose because they wanted to test the water with the teams and the players and obviously the fans, how they would react. And unsurprisingly, there was a huge response. And it's extremely powerful and immediate. Fans were not happy. Players, you know, who are openly gay came out and said, I am not comfortable working with having a partner on board this tournament who ultimately deemed my life not being fit just because of who I love. And it was a really interesting response. FIFA obviously sort of backed out and the deal fell through. But it just shows you that in the women's space, there are certain organizations that still aren't welcome because women's football is really inclusive. Um, over here, we have a brilliant player who retired after the year is called Jill Scott. And she went on a program. I don't know if you guys got it over there called I'm a Celebrity, where celebrities get thrown in the jungle and have to do horrible tasks. And she won. And there was a, a wonderful moment on national TV over here. And I just think Saturday night TV, half the country's tuning in, where she's big crown queen and her girlfriend ran up and kissed her. And you're normalizing same-sex relationships with a superstar England player. And what a positive message. Now, that would never happen with a men's player, which is really disappointing because statistically, we know there'll be plenty of gay players within the England team and across Premier League teams in the UK and across Europe. But they don't feel comfortable in the space to come out and to show who they are. And I think the women's, women's sport wants to protect itself because whether you're a fan or a player, you can be yourself. And I don't think they want brands coming into the space that are linked to cultures or beliefs that go against that. Um, Gambling is another interesting area. It, it's really hard because some categories it's quite easy to demonize. Yet yeah, probably one that if you look at um, probably as any of the if you get a, like Candy Crush, I think it's mostly used by women. And there are you obviously buying elements of it. Is that gambling? Because there are elements of gambling where it's a really is a, a bit of a murky space. It, it gets perceived in football as this negative piece, but then females are quite high consumer. So will that come into the women's space? It hasn't yet. There's very strict rules in the UK around it, so I'm not sure how that will play out. So it is interesting where there's probably organizations who are fueling the success of men's sports. The Saudis are trying to get into every sporting opportunity possible, but women's sports so far has stood firm. I don't know how long that will last for because ultimately we need investment to, to perform and to run and to grow, but it's really interesting that we've taken that stance. I think quite powerful. I, I think it is powerful, especially at a time where a lot of uh, people have concerns and real fear of seeing how much that is taking over in the men's side of sport. But again, I think it, it, it adds value to brands getting involved in women's football, the value alignment of showing that you stand behind a set of values that are widely held. Uh, I, and I think gambling will be an interesting one, right? A kind of sports betting, which is a huge sponsorship segment uh, across both sports uh, these days and sports media. I think this hasn't been tested that much thus far, just because those companies have not seen enough opportunity in the, the audience size in women's football to, to make it a central focus of their own businesses. I think as the fan base grows so rapidly over the next few years, um, their interest in, in sponsoring will increase substantially. And I think that will be interesting. Yeah, I think it'll be something at a a league and club level to navigate right of what feels authentic to uh, our values and is the right way to do this or not what are the deal sizes 
that you're seeing for sponsorship in the sport right now, whether it's with leagues, with clubs, with athletes. Obviously, some of these, as we've talked about, front of kit sponsorship is now fortunately in the multi-million dollars for, for clubs in the bigger leagues. How long do a lot of these deals last? How big are many of them that are not just the front of kit? I think global properties tend to have the sort of longer cycle deals. So they'll be on rotation for sort of four to two years. I think with what we're finding with a lot of club partnerships, they are still on one to two years because for for brands, it's still a lot of the brands coming to the space that they're, they're new to sport or they're new to women's sports. So they're wanting to understand is this the right platform for me? Is it going in the right direction? But I think we're going to see that change. And I think what's quite interesting to see is that a lot of the the big organizations, basically that their fault, they can't take any more investment. I, I mean, if you look at NWSL in America, I mean, you literally have VCs and investment firms queuing up to buy clubs. I think you've got the next two rounds of next two, two or three seasons where you have clubs waiting to be launched because investors are like, great, I'm going to spend 125, 125 million, I think six street invest in the Bay City franchise. And then over in the UK, and actually uh, they are looking at cent- uh, Latin America as well. There's a really exciting investment group called Mercury 13, which is based on the, the women behind the scenes, Mercury um, uh, flight ship. And looking to invest 100 million across women's clubs in Latin America and Europe over the next few years as well. So whilst we're seeing probably the sports partnerships are still growing, some of them are small, smaller. What's really interesting for me is these big VCs and investment companies coming in and saying, I'm going to, this is my long play. They're not in here for philopantric reasons, not here to do good. They are here to make money. If an investment company, like I think CBC were involved with the LTA in America there, Again, they take, they've taken a 20% stake and that is not about doing the right thing. That is about in 10 years time, I want to show profit. I'm going to invest in something that's going to make profit. So that for me is the biggest signal because brands have to be reactive. We've had COVID, you know, over in Europe, we, we, you know, we've had lots of various crises like Ukraine. That's added costs onto brands and brands have had to tighten the belt because consumers are spending in a different way. Consumer spending is coming back and we're seeing a real shift and that's really positive. So there will always be fluctuation with brands because they have to react to the market environment. Investors, however, they play long-term. They play 10 to 20 years. And the fact that now you've got these big organizations identifying women's sport as a potential future and as a safe bet, then suddenly you have to think, hang on, this isn't just a flash in the pan. This isn't, oh, look at them, they're having a great time, but it won't won't last. It's often the thing I see in Twitter, it will never last. Well, it is, and these investors think so. And I think it'll be interesting to... Know what's happening on your side of the pond, but in the UK, it's at the government level now. So the Department of Business and Trade have actually launched a women's sport investor, and they basically have got a brilliant accelerator program where they've invite, invited rights holders and experts across the industry, and they're going to give them the confidence and the skills to go out and look for investment and encourage investors to come in. They want to position the UK as the number one place for women's sport investments. So watch out, world! We're coming for you. We're a small island, but we're coming for you. And I think if it's suddenly a VC and investor interest, if it's on the government's agenda, I think that sort of tells you all you need to know in the direction of travel. Yeah, I'd love to see more countries launch programs like that to compete and support their clubs and leagues, driving more investment interest and upgrading the professionalism and awareness of it as an industry. Do you see in conversations with sponsors, uh, are they more excited to do a deal or more willing to invest more? if they see that a club is bringing in uh, either new ownership or just more funds to invest in its own growth and marketing? 
I think so. I think it's a bit of a confidence play. Um, so I think uh, some examples, I mean, obviously you've got Angel City, which is an incredible example. So you've got some of the biggest investors in the sports space and some of the biggest celebrities getting behind the club. And that's just given huge confidence for brands to get involved because you have people with a very high public profile saying this is a good bet. Back over in the UK, the last few years has been really interesting. I've seen some really high profile people who work within the sports sports space. So for example, you look at Chelsea women, you know, they've poached some incredible people from F1. So from men's F1 to go and work in the women's space. Like if you think how commercial F1 is, how on the money you have to be in sharp. And now Chelsea investing and getting a team in place, a commercial team for the women that are that are of this caliber. That for me is really exciting. And I think it, it does two things. One, it, it creates harder deals. So they'll really challenge the brands and really make sure that the deals that are taken to them are based on the brand need. Because I think it's something where it's probably been a bit lazy in the past. I've had men's deals land on my desk before. Do you know any brands who'd be interested in this? Just a generic deck with figures in and you can get a lovely shirt logo. That's not going to wash in the women's sports space. We have smaller audiences, but you need to create a tailored rights plan to take to various brands. It takes a little bit more work. But I think signaling that we're getting some really strong people into the industry, I think we'll see that change. And I think we'll see people being really proactive, looking at brands. The first place I'd go to and look at, okay, what are their business results? Where are they trying to make impact? When their CEO talks about the audiences they're going after, who's their focus? If I can support that and if my as a rights holder, my audience is matching up like for like. That's a clear green light that I should be approaching them and taking them the data, showing them the growth and saying, I can get you in front of your audience in a way that will engage them through something they're passionate about. That's really exciting. We're seeing huge shifts. And I think it's your point as well around the kind of the engagement piece. We're seeing brands working with rights holders and, and actually coming up with more innovative partnerships are a bit more exciting. I think the challenge with the men's space it's super cluttered you look at premier league team or probably nfl team and see how many sponsors they have you know it's hard to it's all elbows out trying to get cut through where if you're a women's sports sponsor you're probably part of a handful um so it's probably very easy to get cut through you could be we had our first so joy which is a brilliant baby bandit brand over in the uk as the first sponsor of a women's stadium here man city have a purpose-built women's stadium who else can say i'm the first at a women's sports stadium that's a really powerful right to have that you wouldn't get in men's sport really what we're seeing is as a result these really exciting packages are coming to life and these really exciting partnerships that are just getting cut through because they're different and we haven't seen them they can flex the rights they can do things differently they can create new rights and features which in the men's space there's just no wiggle room to do that so i think we're going to see quite a lot of change over time but i think it, it is hard work the rights holders need to put the work in to appeal to the brands and do the research and the homework and also the brands need to really think about what am I trying to achieve? Being an innovator is never easy, but it does pay off. What data are sponsors most focused on in scoping out whether they want to do a deal or the size and length of a deal? Um, and what's missing here? I think there's a few things and, you know, the clubs that are that have a really strong CRM and digitalized program and are in a really good place. Because what you want to be able to do is say, okay, this is my women's audience. So if I'm Arsenal, I'm like, this is my women's team. This is coming through my electronic ticket. This is who's coming through the gate. This is who's purchasing a shirt in my shop. This is who is engaging on my social. Oh, and then they signed up to the newsletter. Oh, and then they might have clicked on a Stella McCartney shirt and gone through to the Stella McCartney website. We need that. We need the same infrastructure that we're seeing in men's sport where we can track consumer journey and we can show that 
if you're a women's sports fan, we can then craft a value. So what we, how we work with a lot of our clients, for example, in, in men's sports, I think if you look at rugby and cricket, they obviously tend to appeal to what we call an ABC one, sort of a higher end consumer profile who are likely to spend more. So when we're, because the obviously these sports have been going for 20, 30 years, they have huge databases. We have a really clear profile of what, who this audience is. We can literally take create business cases that go up to boards and say, right, compared to general population, if we target a rugby fan, they will gen- generate four times more revenue than, a, than someone who's a non-rugby fan. And that's a pretty compelling case. So, okay, if I invest in this sponsorship, it will cost me this much. But actually, even by the time I've spent the investment on the marketing and the partnership itself, I'm still going to come out with three times more revenue. Feels like a no-brainer to me. And I think what we need for women's sport is that same kind of information. What's exciting but challenging is that the audience keeps changing. So one minute we're like, I thought Gen Z, we're just getting all the young kids. And now suddenly we're like, oh God, everyone's coming. We're getting families coming. Now we're getting men's football fans or men's rugby fans coming to the women's games. It's really evolving. So I think it's having to be really smart and track that data and make sure that you're looking at the patterns across who's turning up. It's going to be very different. Who's turning up in the stadium? Um, who's engaging on social because there's quite a big movement on socials and they're really crucially who is buying product because we you know we know all the, the McKinsey stats all the stats we've seen around women being the main purchaser in the households we know that we make the big main purchaser decisions so I would expect every club to be looking at who is going onto their website and buying from their club shop because I would say if you are a mum with kids and they're going to a women's game you, you'd want them in all the kit too as well as if they're the men's game fans so there's quite a lot of joining the dots, um, but I think also quite regular reporting because the audience is evolving and I think clubs need to be quick to react to that. I'm still seeing quite a few of the old tropes around women's sport that it's just women or it's just young people and it's not. It's ever-changing and evolving and I think you need to track that and spend some investment in it. And that will help you reach out to the brands. That's what brands, that's, you know, that's brands exist to serve a consumer and if you can tell them you can hit their bullseye consumer, and we know from things like the Women's Sport Trust research that they're more engaged to women's sport sponsors. So then you've got quite a, a compelling proposition. I'd love to jump more into the advice that you have for clubs and leagues as they're working to build out the strength of their sponsorship sales. And I think your prior point about investing in that data integration is so important. Track and integrate data to know the customer journey, like a modern e-commerce business or all sorts of other businesses would do. I think it's so important and and has not happened yet for a lot of clubs and leagues where they just haven't had the resources on staffing uh, to be able to do that yet. I'm curious, one debate that comes up a lot um, here for women's teams affiliated with a men's team um, is this idea of packaging the sponsorship together, right? It's one unified package as opposed to treating uh, the women's side differently. Do you feel like there's a clear best practice there of do it one way or the other? I don't. It's really interesting because we've had quite a few rights holders contact us and over here we call it unbundling. So it's a big unbundling question and it's quite a big decision for a lot of rights holders. Are we brave enough to go out there and separate our men's and women's partnerships and offer them out as individual packages? And it really depends, I think, on the partner and I guess what you have to offer as a product. So with O2, they signaled to the RFU that we're going to value the women's team equally and we want equal investment, which totally makes sense. That's it's a really powerful message as a partnership to go out with. Completely makes sense. Whereas you look at some other teams and they do have 
separate men's and women's partners. What I think happens at the moment specifically in Premier League clubs that have women's teams, largely the deals make on the men's. Of course it is because they have the profile, the reach and the global scale. What I would say to those clubs is be brave. Take your women's team out separately. At the moment, it's just a badging job. I can't really name many of those sponsors, um, probably apart from the kit sponsors, who are actually investing in the women's team, which is a real shame. I think the previous sponsor of Man United is a really good example, Team Viewer. I'm not sure what they did for the men, but they definitely didn't do anything for the women. Um, and I just think these clubs, if they're not finding that their partner is getting behind the partnership for the women, they should just, when it comes to the end of the renewal, just be brave and take it out to market. Worst case scenario, you can maybe work backwards and say to the partner, actually, can I work with you? But go out there to market and see what happens. And you could create a really exciting proposition. It's not easy. So to your point around the data is really important. You also need to do your legwork around potential partners. You need to be looking at when they're talking in the business press, what does their CEO say, what their business priorities. You need to be making sure that you're helping, you're showing them how you can future-proof their brand, whether it's through you know, how the brand shows up and the brand personality, um, or whether it's just as simple as who you're targeting audience-wise. So it does take a lot more work. But I think if you are in a, a position where your men's sponsor sponsors both and not servicing the women's, what harm is it going to do one season just to take your women's team out to market and see what happens? Because there is going in one direction of travel and you will get to a point where you will have brands knocking on your door. Why not equip yourself now, equip your team, get the skills in place, and also do your women's team the right service. Make sure they have the same marketing team, the same commercial teams, putting their support behind them as the men's. We're in an equal society. And I think it's really important that the clubs um, and rights holders catch up and get on board. Absolutely. I- I've been having a lot of conversations recently with folks across the live entertainment space on this idea of what is the playbook for women's football. I like this comparison of men's football is rock and roll, women's football is pop music, and both can have millions of fans. When you market and produce it for the right target demographics and recognize that it's a different entertainment experience. To your point, we're still very early in, in defining what is a, a women's football match compared to a men's football match. There are already some key differences around inclusivity and demographics, but it is an opportunity. A, it should be a big priority for clubs and leagues, this kind of defining what is our fan culture and that fan experience, but also such a big opportunity for brands who want to be long-term involved in this sport um, to be part of crafting those traditions, right? There aren't hundred year old traditions like there are on the men's side, but people want a kind of, as part of community, right? And these events, you want the traditions, you want the rituals that you go through. It's such an exciting opportunity for brands to craft that alongside the fans and the team. I think your point earlier, Eric, on this, on Angel City creating these experiences, like the culture of match day for women's sport has not been defined. With men's sport, I mean, I'm a Nottingham Forest fan. We're very routine. I go to the same pub. We sit in the same stand. I can get the same seats. Brilliant. We, you know, with these routine creatures and we just, you know, we operate in a certain way. There's certain stands where you're standing, somewhere you're sitting, you know, we all stand up and cheer. It's all very unified, what we do. Women's sport's really different because you turn up to the stadium and if you're, because half the people there aren't regular sports fans, anything can happen they're open to new experiences they're open to doing things differently you could have a bit of fun we actually tend to find in women's sport we lean into what we see in in america with a bit more halftime entertainment just generally a bit more fun and vibrancy around the ground because there isn't quite that sort of structured routine that we probably see in men's sport that we can have a bit more fun and i'd love to see rights holders take that out as a package you can own women's sports match day culture you could define it 
how exciting is that? Yeah, there's a great book that I love and come back to uh, throughout life. There's nothing to do with sport directly. Called It's called True Believer by Eric Hoffer, Thoughts on the Nature of Mass Movements. But it's this formula of how all different types of mass movements across different countries tend to rise up and develop and evolve over time. And one of the points it talks about is these little things, the little rituals or signals that you are part of this community, part of this movement, and the psychological importance that has to pulling people in and making them feel like they belong. I think there's a positivity at women's matches, even in terms of rivalry between teams. You don't see the hatred between opposing fan bases. There is a deeper sense of collectively we're women's football fans. Someone recently talked about it um, as a, there's kind of a testosterone, like fight or flight simulated war experience versus a dopamine, like music festival, collective positivity uh, type experience. And obviously every club has to craft the experience they think is best, but I think um, that's a powerful pitch from an entertainment production standpoint and also for brands. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's just a different kind of way of enjoying sport, a different rivalry. It's passion, but in a different way. And that's okay. You know, there's no, I'm a massive men's sports fan. I never will won't be. And I love going to see Nottingham Forest men, but I love going to see Arsenal women. And they're just two different experiences. One's not better than the other. They're just different. And that's why I love it. Um, so I'm curious for the many clubs that uh, are dependent on fairly local and regional sponsors, but now growing and wanting to upgrade to those major national or international brands that can write the bigger checks, do bigger partnerships. What advice do you have for them in being able to upgrade their sales sponsorship effort? I would say, think about yourself as a brand. And there's lots of you go onto online and Google, there's, lot, there's lots of guides and information on how you can do that. Um, because if you can create a positioning for yourself, what you stand for, what you're about, what you can offer a brand, so if a brand partners with you, who are they partnering with? Give yourself an identity, a clear kind of purpose. Now, this doesn't have to be, I'm fighting for equality or I mean this. It can be, we're all about community. It can be, we're all about a brilliant experience. Whatever that is, create a defined purpose. It's like any brand. If you think of Apple, Nike, they all have a clear purpose. They have a clear identity and a clear purpose. And that's how they get cut through. You need to do that with your club. That's your starting point. I think then when you've done that, there's nothing stopping you going out to big brands. Over here, you know, again, I would Google them. They're brilliant. There is a club in the second tier women's um, domestic football called Lewis. And they are brilliant. They're known as um, Equality FC. And they, again, they value, they support their men's and women's teams equally. And actually, they're best known for, they're probably one of the first clubs in the country that put the women first. And they're probably better known for their, for their women's team. And they, they attract huge sponsors just because of what they stand for. Um, as a club, they're very community focused. So, you know, you buy a ticket and you know that half your ticket funds will go into a local community project. So you're enjoying a sport ball. So you're doing something good. They create a specific premium experience. You can get a lovely G&T there and also some really nice premium crisps. So it's a really different experience from going to the, the football ground. But they created and packaged as Maggie Murphy and the team have created this really strong brand identity, it's a lot easier to sell to a brand if you've created that. And, you know, everyone has that. You just hate yourself, go internally, speak to your team, decide what you're about, what you stand for, and you can package this identity um, and then you can take it out to a brand. There's, there's nothing stopping smaller clubs doing that. You just have to think about how you package yourself. And do Google Lewis because they're a brilliant example, a bit of a shining star in the space. Yeah, great club that, that's been quite a leader within England and vocal on this. 
Um, what have you seen, I guess on the flip side, go wrong or cause problems within a sports franchise's sponsorship team? I've not seen anyone do anything that I would say is a huge, huge problem. I think it's more when they don't do anything and that becomes very, very apparent. So if you look at the um, Barclays Women's Super League in the UK, very fortunate to have Barclays as a partner. They've made the biggest investment in women's um, sport in this country than any other brand and really put their sort of stake in the sand and said, we are going to get behind the women's game. It's a shame that not all the club partners have done the same. So whilst the league sponsor is really heavily invested, really helped to get a brilliant platform and giving it a lot of strength, we've seen clubs where some clubs are really investing in making sure that the women play in the men's stadium. So Arsenal's a great, and I keep talking about Arsenal, but they're doing such a good job. But this season, they last season, they had three games in the men's stadium. This season, they've gone up to five. And it's just general progression. In every game, they're selling more tickets. They're really investing in their marketing. They're getting premium partnerships. And then there's clubs in the league that just aren't doing that. They have some incredible players playing for them, but they're just not investing in their women's team. They're sort of playing the players, playing on the, the big brand club name, but not getting behind the team. And it's less about it being an issue and them doing anything wrong but it becomes very obvious in the women's sports space. And if you're a women's sports fan, you will notice it. And you'll be like, why are they not doing more? That's really bizarre. And I think what we'll see is those brands will just, almost a spotlight will be shone on them for not doing anything. And they'll just stand out. You can't just sit there quietly anymore. It's really noticeable because a lot of club partners are really investing. So I'm not seeing anyone. And look, in women's sports, that isn't, and this is another interesting debate, the right and wrong way of doing things. There isn't. This is a sport that's growing. We love new ideas. We love innovation. And in, in anything, in any kind of marketing, it depends on your audience. It isn't like a, you must do it this way. And it always has to be about quality and it always has to be this, that, and the other. It doesn't. You know, have a look at property. If it's aligned to your values and they're up for doing something that works for your brand or reach your audience, you can have fun with it. You can be serious with it. Whatever you want, there is no right or wrong. I think just do something would be my advice. Uh, lastly, I'm curious, a tension can develop between the league, its clubs, and the athletes all competing for some of the same sponsors. Do you have guidance on how to navigate that and rules to not put in place in terms of reserving certain categories? Or do you just think this kind of free market competition between them is healthy and causes everyone to play at a higher level and, and offer more? I would say absolutely your latter point. It creates healthy competition. You know, no one ever goes, oh, Tom Brady, we shouldn't go behind that kid, should we? You know, we should have quashed him and stopped all his deals. He elevated the league. He elevated the sport. And if we can do that with women's sports, that's brilliant. Now, you've, you've obviously had Megan Rapino, um over in the US who has been sort of starlet of the, the women's soccer space. And she's really elevated the sport as a whole. That's a really good thing. She's probably had some mega deals out of it. But actually, rather than it feel like she's treading on the toes of the other teams, it's just elevated the sport as a whole. And I think we want more of it because we know that ultimately the pathway to sport is often through. You're interested in a story or a superstar. You get pulled into a mega star within the sport. Then before you know it, you may be following the team. Ah, then I've suddenly got into the league. And it's this sort of like, it's this, we call it the, the gateway drug is often through the superstars. So I don't think that's a bad thing. And I think as a club, if you have a superstar, use it as your pulling power. If that individual can bring more fans to your club, that is only a, only a good thing. Jenny, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating conversation it's been great chatting to you eric thank you thanks for listening suggestions for future guests or topics are welcomed so please reach out to keep up with upcoming episodes subscribe to the show in your podcast app and join our community newsletter at womensfootballgroup.com slash net profit
The newsletter includes additional resources and commentary.